I don't think you can call this making a deal, though, when one side of the deal makers are holding a gun and the other side is standing there with their hands up. Welcome to Going for Gold, the USA Today Sports Olympics podcast. I'm Nicole Auerbach. I was covering Olympic swimming during the Rio Games. Um, So you last heard from me when I was talking to Bob Bowman and was very sleep deprived. And since then, have only um, had more out of the pool swimming headlines and news and reporting to follow up on um, as we've been following the Ryan Lochte incident, the, the Rio police aftermath, and everything else that's gone on with that. I bring on our managing sports editor, David Meeks. Um, we're back. We're both back in the U.S. now, but this story is not over, right? Definitely not over. I think that uh, obviously you've been privy to our reporting all along. We've been learning things that we're finally able to publish yesterday about checking out the uh, narrative being offered by the Brazilian authorities. And and honestly, the more the time goes on, the more we find out that while Ryan Lochte was off on the details, was clearly inebriated, which everyone around him admits. The framework of what he said, that he believed they were being robbed when they were stopped, their car was stopped, and they were held up by men with badges who pointed guns at him, that is, in fact, turning out to be true. Right. So as we record this, um, just so those who are listening, because there's so much has changes with this story, um, like it is Monday around 2 o'clock, 2 p.m. Eastern time. Um, David is referencing a story on USA Today Sports or usatoday.com slash sports. It's um, about the, it's basically a narrative of everything that USA Today Sports can report now. Um, it's about the incident itself with a witness. It's about kind of how things unfolded. And it questions what I think a lot of people took at their word is what the real police said happened. I feel like once the real police put out you know, said that this story was fabricated, said that there was a fight originally um, at this gas station. They said there was all sorts of vandalism involving the gas station bathroom. Um, they basically kind of set a narrative. And this story looks into all of those um, and and questions every part of the story and shows that, I mean, the real police led people to believe a certain ver- version of the story. Well, without question, that has happened. I think that uh, the story has unfolded as these things always do. You know, a narrative is offered. I think journalists are used to perhaps dealing with U.S. authorities and have a certain level of credibility attached to what they're saying, and maybe they didn't check things out. But even before the Brazilian police came out with a report, there were lots of questions about Grand Lockheed's story, you know, the gun to the forehead and that we were stopped by police and things like that. But as you look at it, you know, what what sort of tipped us off was we got access to the surveillance videos, and this is all in our story, and I, and I think people really should read it because there's a lot of lessons here for everyone involved, including us journalists. But what tipped uh, us off was looking at the surveillance footage. We couldn't find any evidence that these swimmers went in the bathroom or vandalized the bathroom. We went near it. And I, and I was even skeptical of that. As, the, as Justin Park, who's our videographer, was pouring over it, I saw it. He just tore over this and looked at everything. He couldn't find it. He kept saying, well, it doesn't happen. And I'm like, are you sure? We were looking for, like, other omissions from the tape. Is there anything missing? But there's one camera trained right on the bathroom door, and it does not show the swimmers going near that door, going in that bathroom, or coming out of it. Well, to me, that detail, that allegation that these guys trashed that bathroom fed this perception that they were sort of entitled American swimmers down in this other country, trashing someone else's property with reckless disregard, portraying them as kind of like, you know, frat boys who never grew up. And I thought, well, if that's not true, to me it's like pulling a, string on a, on a sweater, you start to wonder what else is there about this. And then 
some of the stories we heard that, you know, there was a fight, there was a skirmish between Lochte and the guards, and it just did not happen. Right, and, and, and you know, just r- real quick, I mean, also, didn't Gunnar Bentz also say that in his statement, that they didn't trash the he bathroom? He did. He did, and, you know, what he said was, he was being careful. He said, I did not see anyone break into the bathroom. So we had that, and then we had our own reporting. And, you know, uh, you know me, I'm, I try to be very thorough. I sent Justin out to the bathroom. I mean, we're in Rio, and I said, look, you got to go out there. you got to go check it out. And he comes back. He has photos. He's got video. He's like, nothing happened to the bathroom. I said, are you sure? He said, the soap suspension on the wall, the mirror is not damaged. I even said, I said, are, are they new? Does it look like they've been replaced? And he said, no. It looks like a typical kind of, like, you know, decrepit gas station bathroom. I mean, no one expects gas station bathrooms to be nice. So once you had that thing start to fall apart, it really does make you wonder. And I think from the standpoint of looking at Lochte, everyone admits they were done with swimming. The competition was over. They're out having a good time. These guys have a metabolism set for training. They've been training a lot. So they probably haven't been drinking a lot. So he probably got inebriated relatively quickly. Sketchy on the details, but if you look at what he's saying, and if you look at your own experiences about street crime in Brazil, I mean, I talked to so many Brazilian, very wonderful people who talked about how you have to be careful on the streets. If I'm sitting in that car and I've, I've taken a leak in the alley and I've kind of gotten in the car and I think we're getting ready to leave, all of a sudden the car is being stopped, I would not necessarily connect that to a poster or that we urinated in the alley. I would think, oh, we're being robbed. Right. And and so, you know, the one thing that I have thought or, you know, been saying is, and, and I think you agree, you know, as, as especially as our, our colleagues and, and Taylor Barnes, who's, who is based in Rio and, and has been working the story as well as you, um, is, is that it's almost, if he didn't use the word robbery initially, I'm not sure the story would have ballooned the way it did if he just said that they were they got a shakedown or you know extortion or you know whatever like because again it wasn't a huge sum of money and they you know a lot of people initially were like oh well they still have their cell phones they still have their wallets they're not robbed um, it, I think mm-hmm. it's almost that word because he didn't he didn't he he said in his own words he mischaracterized like the experience or the incident and I think he I think it's that word because and like you said I mean I if I'm in that situation might go home and say oh man like I got robbed like I didn't do anything or I pulled down a poster and they took four hundred dollars or whatever it is but honestly he walked back the things about the gun on his forehead um, in his second interview with NBC and and. You know that's that's bravado, but but to me, all the main facts are there. Um, there were just a couple of embellishments, and and so you know, I the word robbery, I think, is more of an embellishment than a lie. Well, first of all, Taylor Barnes, huge asset to us on this story. She lives in Rio. We had her working with us for the entire Olympics. She speaks Portuguese. She knows the authorities. She was able to translate the statements and translate the witness testimonies. And all those things, if you look at our story, they all came together as we just gathered up everything we could get. Witness statements. She had a, We found the witness. She tracked him down, this disc jockey. We did our own interview with him. None of the stuff we did uh, was secondhand. We had Gunnar Benson's statement. We tried to make sure we followed through. And I think what happened in a lot of this sort of portrayals of these guys, first of all, they all were painted with a broad brush. Best of my knowledge, the other three, Besides Ryan Lockheed, all they did was go into a back alley and urinate as they were headed back to the Olympic Village. They didn't do anything else. On the video, it does not show them being raucous. It does not show them being anything but cooperative. So I think that was unfortunate for those guys. Ryan was definitely more raucous. And talking to people close to him, he was outraged. First of all, he's been drinking. Secondly, he thinks this is happening to me because I'm American and they can shake me down. He's not thinking, oh, 
I knocked the sign off the wall, and that's why they're doing it. Now, to get to your point, the police were very upset because of the use of the word. These were men posing as police. We were pulled over, and we were robbed with a gun to my forehead. Those were embellished a bit. And when he did, he, they did point a gun at him, and they did aim a gun toward his head. It was not pressed against his forehead. You look at it, probably five to seven feet away. But those details were very sensational, and it just infuriated the, the Brazilian authorities. And as they looked into it, I think it caused them to make a much more aggressive investigation to this than they otherwise might have. Well, certainly this is not a normal response from the police to someone alleging a robbery. I mean, I think in your piece, you talked about talking to Brazilians about just the, obviously this was high profile and they were, you know, obviously offended by that characterization that you just went through, but they would never normally investigate a robbery claim like this. No, and you need, we need to make a distinction between, you know, the Brazilian people were just very warm, very generous. I met so many great people, very proud to be hosting the Olympics. And, you know, I think they did a great job hosting the Olympics. They have their own experiences with how aggressive the police can be. We had reporting in which a person who lives there said, we've been very surprised at how restrained they've been during the Olympics. We did hear reports that, you know, you can get a gun pulled on you by authorities there relatively easily. So I don't know that that's unusual for them, but I do think if you're from the U.S., it can be shocking to you, and it's happening to you late at night, and it isn't something that you've been hearing is unusual. Don't forget the State Department was warning all Americans be careful about street crimes. That's in your mind as you go down there. These guys are yelling at you in Portuguese. You don't know what they're saying. And so the language barrier played a massive factor, and we really played it up in the story because I think that was a a, a key thing. I mean, you've got these guys getting the American swimmers out speaking in Portuguese. Swimmers don't understand anything they're saying. And fortunately for everybody involved, a bilingual witness stepped forward and helped translate. Right. And, and I think that the, the reaction, the aftermath, the fact that this became so many days that the police, you know, that they were trying to keep them in Brazil, pulling them off planes and things like that, I think, you know, is not what they would normally do if someone in, said that there was a robbery or whatever. This became an international incident, I think, in part, you know, because of the way the story was unfolding, but also because the police were, I think, embarrassed and wanted to be very forceful, very, you know, definitive, wanted to show that they were reacting to this um, claim. And they were, you know, obviously investigating a false police report charge at that time. But it, you know, it, the whole thing just became such a such a big deal. And right now, I mean, it, again, this is Monday, 2 o'clock uh, p.m. Eastern time. Uh, Speedo and Ralph Lauren have both dropped Lochte um, as sponsors. And, and, and I reached out to Speedo after they put out their statement um, to ask them if they'd seen this story, you know, that th- there's a lot more nuance here than, you know, Ryan Lochte fabricated a story and made it all up and, you know, every sponsor should jump ship. And they responded back that they have no further comment on the on this story. Well, I think things will play out over time. And I think if you look at what is surprising to me, I would say it's this. The Brazilians did do a very aggressive investigation, and they did come out and announce what they believed happened. What I thought was lacking in their announcement was there wasn't much attention paid to the behavior of the guards. So all of us need to decide if we really think that four guys urinating in an alley and one of them somehow tearing a sign down. And by the way, it's not really clear how that happened. For all anyone knows, he ran into it. These are big guys. Do we really think that equates them needing to pull a gun on them and detain them? As uh, far as we can tell, under Brazilian law, they had no legal authority to detain these guys. Let's break it down for what it is. We think you damaged the poster. I had no problem with these guys coming up to the swimmers and saying, hey, 
you damage this poster, we're going to ask you to pay for it. And if you don't pay for it, we're going to call the police. Let's keep in mind, they know these guys are there. They've got cameras everywhere. They know they're on video. So to me, the, the best protocol would be you request that, hey, we want you to pay up. If they don't pay up and they say they're going to leave, then you say, we're going to call the police. They're going to show them the video that you guys were here. We're going to send them over to talk to you and you're going to be embarrassed. I think there's lots of ways you could have gone about this. I don't think you can call this making a deal, though, when one side of the deal makers are holding a gun and the other side is standing there with their hands up. Right. I think there's still that piece about the guard's behavior that's still out there. That's still, you know, a question of, you know, what the police, what they, what they were really, what they really should have done and what they were legally allowed to do to get them. Yeah, to- I think, I, yeah, I think if they had said more about that as they released their findings on the investigation, they, they seem to be, I mean, if you look at what happened, you know, they wouldn't release all of the file of their investigation, but yet when Gunnar Benz and Jack Conger were brought back in, they proudly walked them out in front of all the cameras and they held their press conference in the theater. They did put on a show when it came time to like have the Americans on display yes. or talk about what Lockheed did. And they didn't give nearly as much attention to what these guards did. Now, I will say this. Lots of great people in Brazil reading this story. Lots of people in law enforcement in the judicial system are looking at it. And while you have seen people to sort of offer a blanket defense of the guards. We have talked to judges and other people who are looking at this more impartially, and they are saying this was not proper behavior if it went down that way. And so we'll see if it gets a further look. But it is not universally believed in Brazil that the guards behave properly. Well, and and just real quick, I mean, Gunnar Benz also in his statement said that there was video footage not released. Um, that was That would have backed up his story. And as our reporting has shown, that they did not go in the bathroom and, and just tear up this bathroom at the gas station. Um, so, I mean, there, there's a lot with this story. And I think that um, I think we've done a really good job laying out, you know, the details of our story and we'll continue reporting this. But I wonder if you, you know, what it's like to, you know, we we were working super, we've been working super closely on this every day. We had had a lot of reporters, you know, dedicated to work, looking at different pieces of this um, story since the beginning. What is, what you know, I wonder in the face of like, there became a narrative. We were talking about that very early um, of this story and the way that Ryan Lochte was framed, the way that people, I think, especially as I returned to the U.S., I mean, there were a lot of people who were just saying, well, Lochte lied, Lochte made up a story, Lochte, you know, completely fabricated this and this, you know, to, to try to push back against a narrative or to continue reporting things when there is a narrative established. I mean, just how important is that when there are still facts to be, determined to be found. Well, I think it's a lesson here that you always need to be deliberate and go slow. Very hard to do in the modern journalistic era when there's pressure from all around to be ahead of everyone else. And what do you have on this? And what do they have that you don't have? I do not think this was journalism's most proud moment. I think that, you know, if you look at what's happening in the United States, people have been losing faith in the media and losing faith in journalism because they're concerned about credibility and they're concerned about sensationalizing. In this case, there really was a lot of pack mentality going on here about how the narrative was established that, that Lochte and the other three swimmers behaved like frat boys. And we all learned this in the very first communications course we ever take in college. First impressions are very lasting and they're very difficult to shake. I believe that's what we were dealing with here. When you start cutting back against the grain of that narrative and start finding facts that differ with that, I got to tell you, even when I was, even as we were reporting this, and I'm hearing all this, we're gathering it all up. You start going, wow, is it really that different from what this just seems very, very different from what we've heard? And you have to have, you know, basically you got to have the courage of reporting to go forward and publish it. Yeah. And, and I think that that's that's very true that, you know, the first 
the the sensational headlines or or columns or you know the New York uh, Daily News and, and New York Post back page you know covers and all that is much more easily remembered than the actual you know like a nuanced reporting of stuff later on and and I think that that's again as you're seeing fallout like you know the, these two two main sponsors Speedo and and Ralph Lauren like backing away from Lochte you know that it's almost a rush to judgment on their part too and like a pressure coming from that original narrative. Um, which, which is a little, you know, I just think that's fast. If you're a sponsor, you know, take a few weeks. There's no, there's no rush. It's, it's kind of adding to the pile on effect that you were talking about. Well, there, there is, you know, there's all kinds of shaming that goes on in the world today. There's Twitter shaming. And now if you're an athlete and you do something wrong, there's sort of sponsor shame. Yeah. Journalists then start calling all the sponsors and asking them all kinds of questions. And the sponsors are getting some heat and their PR people start going into the big wigs and saying, oh, we're getting all us called. Are you, what are you going to do about Ryan Lochte? The problem with all that is there's nothing wrong with making a decision if you think this person doesn't reflect what you want to represent anymore. But the problem with all that is it's all based on a narrative that was established early but not completely checked out. Right. And, and I think that that's part of this whole thing. And, and I, I do think that it, you know, as, as, as the media, as part of the media and watching it unfold, it was very interesting you know, especially in those maybe like days two or three, even honestly, even day one, um, when our colleague Rachel Axon and I, you know, we're talking to Lochte's mom, um, she's shooken up on the phone and, and, and we're, we're reporting, you know, she's saying this happened. And then the IOC comes out and says, this absolutely didn't happen just to see how it it's been like almost a real time lesson in like how these stories happen and how narratives happen. Because, you know, that was an interesting experience to be in the middle of because you know we had we had her mom his mom on the record telling us all of us with details about guns and you know all of this stuff with multiple teammates um and just to see how that that got pushed back with the IOC and the USOC and people narrative and then we figured, you know we I talked to Ryan he explained that they thought they were going to get in trouble for being out late and that's why they originally said no nothing happened and then to see people you know people everyone push back against that it was it was kind of throughout the way as the narrative became set and then was sort of crystallized i feel like when the police said that they um, we're pursuing a false reporting charge on them. Like it just, as, as it went through, it was just very interesting as, as a real time look at reporting and how these stories come about. And then there becomes this overall narrative, which I'm sure it's, it's very, it's going to be very, very difficult for Ryan Lochte to fight back forever. I mean, people are going to think he lied and created an incident, international incident. I think it's going to be taking him a long time to recover from this. I mean, I, I have seen this before in my career. I saw this in New Orleans about what was atrocities allegedly going on in the Superdome uh, that weren't checking out. Uh, that got reported all over the place and, and finally got walked back maybe three weeks later. But even now, you'll still hear people refer to, oh, yeah, that was crazy in there. And, you know, in this story, the IOC statement that this absolutely did not happen, that's a false statement. You cannot say none of this didn't happen. You can say he embellished the gun to the forehead. Okay, so there's a difference between gun to my forehead or gun toward my head. But there's not a big difference. I mean, I don't know how much longer it takes the bullet to get to your head from your forehead to a foot away. It's a quarter of a second, less than that. So I, and I also think the judge, when she issued her order to seize their passport, said, oh, well, they didn't look upset when they got back to the Olympic Village. An hour later, as they went to security, they seemed fine. Well, then we find the witness who's at the scene says they weren't fine. They were terrified. And that even Lochte, who at first did not want to sit down, he was being proud, he was being defiant, he was probably not quite connecting in his current physical and mental state what they were talking about, if in fact that's what they were talking about. And he refused to sit down, well then they pulled a gun on him, then he does sit down. 
So when you have a witness there saying these guys are terrified, but a judge said they seem nonchalant, well, that first report was they were nonchalant. That fed the perception again that they made right. it up. Yeah, it's, it's very hard to, to shake that. And it's been really interesting just to see how narratives, how hard they are to push back. At. And like you said with Katrina, I mean, that stuff still exists. I mean, I bet if you walk down, like I'm in New York, you walk down the street and you ask someone about the Superdome, they probably re- yeah. remember the original, the original narrative that was said. You know, I knew, I knew uh, General Russell Honore, great American, one of the most, I mean, they don't come any more honest than this guy. And he told me this himself. We were standing, I remember we were standing on the brush door pass, and he said, you know, the report about they were shooting at the helicopter when it came down. He said, actually, that was the helicopter heard as it came down, a Jeep pulled up and ran over a sealed plastic bottle, and it made a loud pop, and that became they're shooting at the helicopter. Yep, yep. Yeah, it's, it's been interesting, and especially, um, you know, our, our columnist, one of our columnists, Nancy Armour, wrote throughout this Lochte saga that it was also – you know, the real police devoting so many resources to this and, and trying, you know, pulling people off planes and, and different things like that. And she got pushed back. But there's also not always just one narrative with a story. And that's something that I think people, you know, that got overlooked, too, because you can still be expressed that, you know, this was a ridiculous thing that the police spent so many resources and pulled people off plane over what they were calling looking for a false police report, which by the letter of the law is not a false police report because they did not like in, have this incident at the gas station, then go straight to a police station and try to report it as a robbery. That's not what happened. Um, the, you know, it's just, it, there's so much more context and so much more nuance. So, um, so I think that, you well, know, the story that you and Taylor wrote is very important in that regard. Well, I, I you know, in a perfect world, we'd love for these athletes to stop and use a real restroom and none of this even happens. We all understand that when you represent the United States and you're an Olympic athlete, you need to walk a tight line when you're in foreign countries. That's a perfect world. When you're riding home at 6 a.m. in Rio de Janeiro and you really got to go and you stop at a gas station and the bathroom clock, you got to go somewhere else. I can absolutely see how this would happen. But how it goes from that to they're getting in the cab and the guy stops the cab from leaving flash of the badge at them and pulls guns on them. To me, that's where I sort of started to say, all right, well, let's, let's take stock of these offenses here. And do we really think that's a proper way to handle it? And people should understand that under Brazilian law, it's not allowed. They don't allow vigilante justice either. You are not allowed to say, Hey, you damaged my property, draw guns on them, assess the value of it on the spot and make people pay. You can't do that. You can ask them, you can negotiate with them. You can't use force. If you need to report it to the police, you should report it to the police. So I want people to understand this is not like something that Brazilians would necessarily condone you. Right. And, and even if that is something that someone tries to do or does happen in Rio, it doesn't mean that it's the letter of the law, um, which is also, you know, some people have been explaining away, well, that's how it works in Rio. Well, not technically, not by the letter of the law, even if that happens. Um, so so yeah. I think is, if there's, a, if, do you have anything else, David, you want to add? Otherwise, we can probably wrap up this podcast. And honestly, we might have another one. As no, I, I think, it, I think, I think it's, I think you know what? I really do feel like the reporting on the story and what unfolded here and what really happened and the, how everyone behaved, how the journalists reacted, especially in the digital age. I think they'll be talking about this in college classes. I really do. I think this is a case study in that everyone needs to look at to examine. I mean, I mean, everybody from you know, obviously Ryan Lockheed's reviewed things he did. I think he certainly regrets being that inebriated and the whole thing even happening in the first place. Right. And, and his early, sense, early comments um, for certain. Yeah, he re- I'm sure, I'm sure he, re- I mean, he said he regrets all that. I'm right. sure he does. He sobered up and he's like, you know, that was stupid and immature at the same time as journalists, it's really 
a reminder of the very one of the very first things you learn. You got to have firsthand information. You got to check everything out. You can't take anything on face value, and you certainly can't use information you're getting second, third hand, and, and call it credible. Yes, and I think you know that that's a healthy skepticism that you know people should have with authority figures anywhere, but especially if you're in a different country and you know not take everything that you hear at face value. So, um, yeah, last thing I want to say is yeah. you know what we had a fabulous Olympics. It was really fantastic. The competition. I mean, I got to see so many thrilling things. Seeing Michael Phelps swim, seeing uh, Simone Biles. I got to go to the track the night that Usain Bolt ran the 100 meters. It was a fantastic Olympics in, there in so many ways. And so I think people need to understand that uh, the competitions, all that was fabulous. Rio did do a very fine job. They were knocked heavily before it happened. They pulled it off. They got it. They got everything done. They got it all together. And we had no complaints with the technology, how we were treated, nothing at all. And I do think on this particular story, it's going to go forward. And I hope people keep checking in with us. There is going to be more to come on this. We're on the story. We're going to stay on the story. And uh, we'll see where it leads. Yes. And I will say that you definitely figured out the right way to cover the Olympics, getting to see Michael Phelps, Simone Biles, and Usain Bolt um, all. Did you see Katie Ledecky in person? Did I, get- I, I did see Katie. Yes, I was with you, actually. We saw her swimming. There much. you go. You got, you got the big four. So she met. He had one of the greatest lines I heard ever when you asked her, you, you said, are you concerned about finishing second or third in the, in the uh, semifinal? And she just looked, looked at you and said, the race is tomorrow. I just <laughs> love that line. Yeah, no, she was phenomenal. But you got to see all the, in, some incredible athletes. I only got to really, I was held, <laughs> held hostage in the swimming pool uh, most of the time. Yeah. But, you know, it, yeah. it was a phenomenal Olympics. And the performances on the courts, in the pools on the floor. I mean, it was, it was incredible. So this was the off season story of the games. Um, and like David said, we will keep investigating it, keep reporting on it. Um, so please keep checking usatoday.com. Uh, thank you, David, David Meeks, our managing sports editor, um, and reporting on this story. Uh, I'm Nicole Auerbach and just stay tuned for the next episode of going for gold, our Olympics podcast. Hopefully we'll have another one for you soon. All right. So long everybody.